Good morning. Happy February. On a Thursday, Groundhog Day, I came outside and saw my shadow, which means we'll have six more weeks of this current sermon series. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. It'll go for longer than six weeks. But. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, if you'd like to turn your Bibles there, we'll be looking at the final four verses. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you were Christ's, then you were Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Our Heavenly Father, if you'd pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and Lord, what a beautiful day it is to come together to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the meal we're going to be enjoying here in just a little bit, and the opportunity to come together in fellowship and to break bread and enjoy each other's company. Lord, we pray for our time in your word, that we would be pointed to the gospel, Lord, and to the incredible promises and blessings that we have through this passage. Lord, for all of us, I pray that we can be stirred in our love for you and our love for our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. On September 8th of last year, when Queen Elizabeth II died, at that moment, the man that the world had known as Prince Charles for 70 years had some drastic and immediate changes take place in his life. He had a new title. He had been the Prince of Wales, but when his mother died, he became the King of England. He would be entitled to wear different regalia, signifying his new office. When he has his coronation scheduled for later this spring, King Charles will be dressed in the official garments of a king. He'll be robed in a royal robe. He'll be handed a scepter, which is a symbol of power. He'll be anointed with oil, which symbolizes consecration. His dressing will include a sword, special spurs, a royal ring, and the St. Edward's crown, items that various monarchs have donned at their own coronation ceremonies, some of these items going back centuries. Charles didn't just become king of England, but king of the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. He's the monarch over the Commonwealth, which includes Canada, Australia, and other nations in Asia, Africa, and South America. He has a different relationship to the world. He inherited about $500 million in assets when his mother died. And along with that money, he inherited a number of powers. He appoints the British Prime Minister and Supreme Court Justices. He appoints bishops over the Church of England. He's the Commander-in-Chief of the British Armed Forces. He can also grant pardons, drive without a license, travel without a passport, and grant knighthood. In an instant, his world changed. We're resuming in our Galatians series this morning, and in four verses, Paul will use the loftiest language to this point in our study and point to the transformation that a person enjoys as a result of faith in the gospel. King Charles had a new title. We'll see that through the gospel, we have a new title. King Charles has new garments. Believe it or not, we'll see that through the gospel, we too have new garments. King Charles had a new relationship with the world. 
We'll see that through the gospel, we are called to have a different relationship with the world. King Charles had a new inheritance, and we'll see that through the gospel, we have a new inheritance. And those will actually be the basis for our four points today. Through Christ, we have a new title, new garments, a new relationship with the world, and a new inheritance. Our main point today is that Jesus brings a gospel that touches every aspect of life. And with that, we'll jump into our text this morning. First point, a new title. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ. Those two words are integral to Paul's theology. Paul uses them all the time. So much so that I think we can take it for granted and not appreciate the weight of what he's saying. As a reminder, Christ is a title, not a name. Specifically, when Paul refers to Jesus as Christ, he is emphasizing his messianic identity as the promised Savior and Redeemer. In this instance, Paul is talking about a status that we have in Christ. The language of sonship is another phrase that can be easy to overlook and take for granted. But really, it's an amazing promise. We get to approach God as sons. And the word son matters here. Most English translations of the Bible say, you are all children of God. In Greek, Paul uses the word son. And that is theologically relevant because it is pointing to this overarching biblical theme of sonship. Briefly, let's consider some of the ways the word son is used in the Old Testament. It gets used collectively to refer to Israel. In Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23, when Moses is being told to demand the release of the Israelites from Pharaoh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And so all of Israel as a nation is being referred to as God's son there. Another example, in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were referred to as the son of God. The king was an anointed office, and so they had this unique title which pointed to the fatherhood of God. Third, and one we've talked about in recent weeks, we have this sonship theme in the life of Abraham, where Abraham is given the promise of blessing, land, offspring, and he's ultimately promised a son. And what we see in Christ is that all of these strands of this sonship theme have their culmination, because it is Jesus who is the true Israel. He keeps the law that they could not. He perfects the sacrificial system that they could not. They sinned in the desert, he did not. Jesus is the true king, which makes him the true son. As King David was given the promise that a son from his line would have a kingdom that would never end, Jesus is the promised king who ushers in an eternal kingdom. And Jesus is the true son of Abraham, born from the line of Abraham, through whom the true blessings are ensured. Paul's point isn't some generic, God is everyone's father. No, he's saying that we have sonship because Jesus is the true son of God who makes 
all who are in Christ, the sons of God. In the section where we will, Lord willing, be next week, Paul starts to talk about adoption language, that we are adopted as God's sons through Christ. And so to say children of God here is really missing out on the layers of meaning that this idea conveys. We are sons of God. That's what the New Testament says. And that applies just as much to women as it does to men. Kind of like for guys, when the New Testament refers to the church as the bride of Christ, that that also applies to men. What you don't have in the Old Testament are average people referred to as God's sons or individual people personally referring to God as their father. But through Christ, we are invited into this close relationship with God our Father. And it is through the means of faith in Christ. The sonship language also shows the people of God in familial language. That through the gospel, all who have a shared faith are part of a family of God. We come to our second point, new clothes, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul talks about being baptized into Christ and putting on Christ. And let's start with the end of this verse. There are Old Testament passages where we see the changing of clothes as a symbol for spiritual transformation. An especially vivid example of this is Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And there are actually quite a few other passages to which we could look. For instance, the priests in the Old Testament wore special garments associated with their priestly duties. Those were meant to consecrate the priest and set him aside for a specific task. For Paul, he continues to utilize this language both of taking off and putting on. In Ephesians and Colossians, Paul will talk about putting off the old self, symbolic of putting off the old way of life. In other passages, he talks about putting on a new self. And it's a new self which is found in Christ. Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Romans 13.14 Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so the overarching point which Paul is making is that we are putting off an old way of life. The putting on refers to the changed life of a person who is a follower of Jesus. It's not that we do this so that God can love us or forgive us. Rather, it's a response to knowing that we're loved and forgiven. That as people who have a new identity, who have new blessings, who have a new inheritance through Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, to the glory of Christ, that we 
should, too, live lives in the world which reflect the love, goodness, and grace of Jesus. But what does that have to do with baptism? Paul says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I think what Paul is saying here is best explained by what he's not saying. Some churches teach baptismal regeneration. That's the idea that baptism itself is what causes a person to be born again and to receive the Spirit. That's not what Paul's saying. This is the book of Galatians. All throughout these passages, all throughout this book, Paul is pointing to justification by faith in Christ. We are saved by faith, not by works. And he's not saying that baptism is part of what's saving you. At this church, we teach that baptism is instead a response to knowing that you've been saved. And on that, I'll pause for just a moment. Just because baptism doesn't save you doesn't mean it's unimportant. It is important. Jesus commands it. But not because he needs our help in saving us. He does the work, and he does it entirely. But what baptism does is it points to a symbolic washing away of sin. It is symbolically pointing us to the gospel. As Jesus died and rose, baptism in water is a symbolic death as you go under the water and a symbolic resurrection as you are lifted up out of the water. Baptism is symbolic of God pouring out his Holy Spirit. Baptism shares in something that Jesus experienced. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus himself was baptized. It is honoring to Christ to be baptized because in baptism you are being obedient to his command. It's also a public display that your life belongs to Jesus. And it is something that we do as a part of the life of the church. Just as the Lord's Supper, which we're planning to do next week, is inherently communal, so is baptism. You can't baptize yourself, but rather it is done in community. And so later this spring, Lord willing, we'll do more baptisms. And if you've never been baptized and you're a Christian, there is no reason not to be baptized. It's as simple as that. In the New Testament, there is no such thing as a believer in the gospel who is not baptized. It's unthinkable in the New Testament. Now, in our society, we treat church as though it's optional. We think we can be good Christians on our own. We don't need to use our gifts in the church, participate in the life of the church, participate in communion with the church. And so if we treat the church like that, then it's all the easier to undermine the importance of baptism and think that it's not really that big a deal. In the early church, they had a proper view of looking at baptism as an important step of faith. A person who had heard the gospel, who had repented of his or her sins, who had responded in faith, baptism was seen as an important step in the life of someone's faith. And so in Galatians, Paul isn't saying that baptism itself saves a person, but he's speaking to a certain level of spiritual maturity for a person who has been baptized. And so for this person who has professed faith, who has been baptized, 
that we should respond by putting on Christ. And really, that metaphor of putting on really fits well with the idea of baptism. I think about when we do baptisms, and this is really true for any church who does baptism by full water immersion, that you come up out of the water and you're wet, you're soaked. So what's one of the first things you're gonna do next? Change, you put on dry clothes, you put on different clothes. And may that be symbolic of the new self we are putting on in Christ. Christ, but it's not just the day we get baptized, that it is a continual process of putting on Christ. We are called to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. The gospel is meant to impact how we live our lives because the gospel Jesus brings touches every aspect of our lives. We come to our third point, a new relationship. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To briefly summarize the point of this verse, regardless of someone's ethnicity or gender or status, none of that matters in the eyes of God. Paul does not just haphazardly pick these examples. These were categories of people where group distinctions were significant in the Greco-Roman world. But sadly, these are groups where historically there has been continued division. He starts with Jews and Greeks. And Greek here is really synonymous with anyone who's not Jewish. He's writing to an audience who largely had a Jewish background. And it could be easy for one to beat his chest about being an ethnic Israelite. That's all well and good, but you're just as sinful and in need of grace as a Greek. Paul points to slave and free. It's hard to know the exact numbers, but roughly 20% of the Roman world at this time was enslaved. Even today, worldwide, there are still an estimated 40 million people who live in slavery. Sadly, it's a human problem that men love to divide themselves and find reasons to justify their own superiority. Most societies throughout history and throughout the world have had their various ways of putting people into various classes and castes and levels of social rank. But in Christ, there is equality among people, that all are welcome to receive the forgiveness of a gracious Savior, that no one is more worthy or deserving, that no one is better than anyone else. And that should impact how we view others, that all are in need of the gospel, and all are worthy of love. Sometimes I'll see a news story about an unlikely friendship between animals of different species, a chicken named Mabel who roosted by keeping a litter of puppies warm. At a wildlife preserve, a rescued elephant named Bubbles struck up a friendship with a Labrador retriever. Did I get ahead of my slides? This is the elephant bubbles. And then at Noah's Ark Animal Sanctuary in Georgia in 2001, they adopted a, a lion named Leo, a grizzly bear named Baloo, and a tiger named Shere Khan, who had been together, confiscated from a drug smuggler. 
And these animals remain best friends for the rest of their lives. And if you're thinking, yeah, but maybe after the picture, one of them ate the others. No, this is 2001. Uh, and these animals have started dying from old age, but no, for their whole lives, they, they live together in harmony. Animals can be friends with each other, but humanity is so divisive with itself. It is meant to impact us both within the church, but also with how we interact with the world. Because Jesus brings a gospel that touches every aspect of our lives. Paul says that there is no male and female. That would have been a radical notion in the ancient world. Women were looked down upon as second-class citizens in ancient Rome. In Roman society, a woman spent her entire life under the authority of a man, either under her father, and if her father died, another male relative or brother, and then when she got married, under her husband, and if her husband died, then under a son. There were various restrictions on what women could or could not do in civic life. But Paul says, for you are all one in Christ. The gospel is meant to unite people. It's meant to break down walls. It's meant to point to a universal brotherhood and sisterhood of people of all walks of life who are united by a shared faith in the Savior of the world and who have a desire to reach the world with the gospel message. Now, I'll say something about this verse because it's one of the most widely taken out of context in all of Paul's writing. Some people take Galatians 3.28 to be Paul saying that these distinctions don't exist at all. That's not what he's saying. For instance, no male and female. He's not saying gender does not exist. That's reading really a contemporary political ideology into the passage. Rather, he's saying that men are not superior to women or more deserving of grace. Of course, men and women exist. Elsewhere, Paul will talk about different roles of men and women within a marriage. When Paul says that there's no Jew nor Greek, he's not saying that a Jewish person isn't Jewish. He points to his own Jewish ethnicity in some of his writings. But his point is that that is not the basis for his salvation. It's important to read the Bible faithfully. You can pull a verse out of context to make it say anything you want it to say or to make any sort of justification or ideological statement that you want to make. But what should matter is taking the Bible for what it says. I was at a pastor's lunch this week and a pastor from Muhammad made a comment while we were eating that really struck me, that if Jesus walked into this room right now, whatever we were doing, we'd stop. If I was preaching, I'd stop. If we were in the middle of a song, we'd stop singing. Why? Because we'd want to hear what Jesus had to say. And in the Bible, we have God's word. We have what he has to say. And we should read it for what it faithfully says, not for what we want it to say. Because when we understand this verse correctly, we see it's pointing us to the gospel and to God's love for the world. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Because 
God wants his church to display his love and unity to the world. The world divides itself. Society divides itself. The church is not called to do that. Throughout the centuries, the gospel has gone out throughout the world. This is a reflection of God's care for people of all backgrounds, of all ethnicities, in all places. And we should understand and we should understand that in what we support, but also in how we view people. We've talked in recent weeks about the promise God made to Abraham, that Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to the nations. And we most acutely see that in the gospel, that God cares about his world, and Christians are called to care about the world our God has made and the people that he has made. We come to our fourth point, a new inheritance. Verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul has mentioned Abraham seven previous times in Galatians chapter 3. He has built a rich theology where he has pointed us to the faith of Abraham, to the promises God made to Abraham. And it's fitting that this chapter ends with Abraham. Paul says that Christ makes us Abraham's offspring. Maybe you're thinking, I thought you said earlier that we were sons of God. Which one is it? It's both. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, the true son whom the Lord promised to Abraham. And because of that, we are offspring of Abraham. But Jesus is also the son of God, and because of that, we have divine sonship. It is because of Jesus that we have both of these statuses. It is because of Jesus that we can go to God as our heavenly father. And it is because of Jesus that Abraham is our spiritual father in the faith. It matters. All throughout the Old Testament, you have the promises to Abraham. It never goes away. And it is through Jesus that we have access. Abraham was promised land, offspring, and blessing. Through Christ, we are given the land and the promise of heaven, and a new heaven and a new earth. We are part of Abraham's offspring, which gives us a new identity as God's family. And we are promised blessing, that we are blessed with grace and forgiveness. We are blessed by being able to be a blessing to the world. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are blessed with fellowship with God. We are blessed with a new title, new clothes, a new relationship to the world, and a new inheritance. I think of all the great wealth King Charles inherited, all the powers and titles he's given. But kings and queens reign for a season. The gospel is forever, and the life Jesus gives is eternal. It's something that a king cannot buy or decree, but that Jesus, the King of all kings, freely gives to a fallen world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus brings a gospel that touches every aspect of our lives. Is the gospel that to you? 
or is it a hobby? Is it a box that you've checked? Is Christianity just the religion you've said you're part of? There's so much richness to this passage. In Christ, you have a new title. You matter to God. In Christ, you have new clothes. Again, the language of putting on the new self, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, how you live matters to God. Not toil of trying to earn God, but as a Christian, a person who is forgiven by the gospel, saved by grace, living a life for God and to the glory of God. In Christ, you have a new relationship. Other people matter to God. He cares about his world. The greatest commandment is to love God. But on the same level as that, the commandment says that we are also to love your neighbor as yourself. In Christ, you have a new inheritance. It's not an inheritance that you earned or deserved, but that a good God has bestowed upon you. Jesus brings a gospel that touches every aspect of our lives. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the truth of the, of the gospel, Lord, of the salvation that is found in Christ. Lord, may that be transformative in our lives, in our love for you, in our love for others. In Jesus' name, amen.